Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. This is Judith Lay inviting you to join me again in the Archive Room, Manx Radio's store of tales of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. This is the final part of this mini-series of three programmes, looking back over some of the memories we've shared since we started digging deep into the station's archives. I'm fascinated by all the stories I find, but I especially enjoy childhood memories from the early 1900s and stories of the years when the island was overrun with holidaymakers. And I have all of that and more in today's programme. Let's begin with David Collister in conversation with Victor Neal, who was born in 1918 and grew up in Central Douglas at number 5 Myrtle Street, one of a row of 11 houses opposite the back of St Mary's Roman Catholic Church, which provided a ready-made playground for Victor, his brother and their friends. If you notice, there's a sloping outcrop at the back of St Mary's One of our favourite tricks was to get up on this slope with our back to the wall and see how far we could walk along before you (laughs) fell out. Alongside the church was shim and sail rooms where they sold old furniture and stuff like that, and that was right opposite our house. And we could run through that and go down into Hill Street where there was a cattle market. We played in the streets. There wasn't many uh, motor vehicles. They would have hardly been seen on the roads. The bakers would be coming with their horses and carts. The milkman would come, a two-wheel float with a big milk can stuck in the middle, <laughs> and they would be dishing out the milk into the jugs you would leave for them, pints and quarts and half pints, because you had these little gardens in front in Myrtle Street, and there was always a good supply of manure for the horses. Of course. And the first yeah. to see it was the first out with the shovel. <laughs> he used to play TT races because in those days the, the riders and the teams used to go to the small garages. And the Sunbeam team in the 1920s, Charlie Dodson and Alec Bennett, they were in Circular Road. Oh, yeah. We as kids used to go and be looking at them Mm. and uh, run messages for them. And at the end of the races, we would get their number plates. Oh, really? And we'd stick these on our chests and and, tie it on with string, and then we'd start racing round and round the block, and we'd run round all day long. (laughs) Uh, They would be trying to do a 100 laps round... (laughs) the lane in in Myrtle Street but it was all all part of the excitement another thing we used to make very few of us had push bikes because we didn't have the money but we'd go out to the tips and uh, often enough you'd find an old frame and the handlebars and as long as you had that you stuck a bit of wood through the place where the pedals normally go, get a couple of pram wheels and maybe uh, with a couple of uh, six-inch nails in order to fit them up. And then you would go along, to treadling your way along till you come to the hill. Great fun going down the hills. No brakes. No brakes. <laughs> you stick your feet down on the ground. And we all wore pretty hefty boots in those days. And it was a good job because... Uh, 
you would soon be wearing them out if you had some of the footwear they've got these days. My brother and I, we were, were collecting cigarette cards and we used to go down on the promenade on a Sunday morning mm. and start at one end and go right along, right up to Onkenhead, looking for empty packets. And anybody who dared bring a packet of cigarettes out, you were up there, got any cigarette cards, mister? Oh, I see, yes. You would get hundreds of these cards in, in the summer, and we would go to one end, then back again, rush home for dinner, down again, and spend the whole of Sunday galloping along. We had a ways of earning money, extra money, because we had our penny pocket money each week. But we would go down the shore when the tide was out, and we'd make pictures in the sand with shells and bits of orange peel and all the rest of it, and uh, seaweed, and then start shouting to the people to give us a penny, you know, for the, oh, for, for but, the yeah, picture. Yeah. And you would uh, carry on till either the tide come in or a policeman arrived, and <laughs> then you would do a bunk. And back in Myrtle Street, Victor Neal clearly remembers the household at number one and some other memorable characters. In number one, there was a family called Kelly and uh, the head of the household was a baker who worked for sales on Broadway. Now, he bred canaries and budgerigas and the whole of his attics were covered with... uh, cages where all these birds were in. He also had a green parrot and a grey cockatoo and they had three dogs, a greyhound called Needle and then two uh, smooth-haired terriers, one called Prince and the other Nelly. Now uh, in those days the bakers used to work during the night and uh, so to get the bread ready when the shops opened and uh, Phil Kelly would uh, come home walking sometimes through the Villa Marina grounds and up Finch Road. And if it was a fine day, the parrot and the parakeet used to be put out in the garden on a little table. And uh, as soon as Philip uh, come round the corner at Prospect Hill, the old parrot would start shouting, Here's Phil, here's Phil. (laughs) And the parakeet would be jumping up and down and screaming. And the three dogs used to come out of that house and rush out to meet him. And all the canaries and the budgies up in the attic would all be chuffing. And so everybody knew when Phil Kelly was arriving home from work. There were, there were a lot of characters around Douglas in those days, oh, weren't there? terrific number. There was one, uh, Johnny Cubbon, who was known as Johnny Putty Nose. And uh, his mother had a, a little shop just on the on the quay on the corner of Queen Street there, and uh, he'd be shuffling round selling the papers, and as he'd be going along, he'd be shouting, "Big boat in the bay, big yeah. boat in the bay," <laughs> and then anybody that looked at him, he would pull a face and stick his tongue out at you, and uh, <laughs> then there was. Uh, Filario, who had the hurdy-gurdy, and his monkey, and the, the, the hurdy-gurdy was on a stick, and yeah. and he had this little monkey, at, if my memory is he had a green jacket and a little red hat on, and the monkey used to go round with the little cup to collect the pennies. There was Harry Winter, who 
who went around selling vegetables. And again, he had a donkey in the, the cart. And when they got to the raglan, the donkey wouldn't go past the raglan until they got a pint of beer for him. So uh, again, he was a character. <laughs> Animals that are characters in their own right seem to appear quite often in the archive room. On the Peel to Glen May Road, just outside Patrick Village, is the entrance to Shenvala, the farm that once was home to Pete and Sarah Kelly and their four daughters. John Kenyuk went to visit one of those daughters, Mrs Nancy Mills, following the publication of A Country Girl, the book Nancy wrote about her life in the country. It all started so well, chatting about the milk produced on the farm being sold via the family-run milk round in Peel. You had a milk round in Peel, didn't yes. you? Yes. And your Uncle Bobby, I think you said, yes. went he, on the, on the yes. milk round. Yes. He was very popular mm. in Peel because he used to get on well with all the lady customers. <laughs> <laughs> he was a nice man, though, wasn't he? I remember him. Yes, he was all full of fun. He was. And I remember there was a Dr Longson in Peel. Peel. By the bus station he had this thing and he used to have a pet monkey. <laughs> And everywhere he went, he took this pet monkey with him in the, in the car. One day, my Uncle Bobby said he went in to give him the milk. He used to go walk right in through the door into the back and put the milk into the jug, you know. And as he was going past the coal oven, the door was open and he shut it as he was going past. <laughs> and apparently, this, the monkey was in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor's wife said, what have you done with my monkey, you know? This monkey used to come round with him when he came to the farm with medicine, a bottle of medicine. You got a tonic or something. And once he came when I wasn't well, he gave me medicine. But I never got the medicine because the monkey drunk it. Oh, dear. I can remember that. Right. Well, what I was going to ask you before you got on to the monkey. Well, my deepest admiration to you, John Kenyuk. I don't know how you managed to carry on with the interview after that story. And that's the beauty of talking to people. You never quite know what you're going to hear. When David Collister talked with Arthur Underhill about his time in the island's police force, he discovered that in the 1930s there was no police transport and thumbing a lift from a member of the public sometimes was the only option. David was curious to know if Arthur had ever resorted to doing this himself. I certainly did. It was productive, but uh, it, it was rather strange. I was night section sergeant and I was walking over towards... Broadway, and it was still very busy, you know, in the summer, mm. and it was a lovely night, and Sergeant Brown was at, at Broadway, and he was due to go off, and I actually, I, I, was, I was in the roadway, I don't know why the heck I was in the roadway, I shouldn't have been in the roadway, but I was, and a car came along, and it had no lights on, well, in those days, we couldn't be bothered with that sort of thing at that time of the night because it, it was far too hectic. So what we used to do, we used to point to the lights, you see, and invariably they would be switched on uh, and you'd sign them on. Well, I pointed to the lights and he didn't switch them on, but he drove straight at me. So I jumped out of the way and I thought, how am I going to catch him? So there was a car came along, a lovely big Jaguar car. So I stopped them yeah. and I, I said, follow that car. So he said, right, so we got... And this car, he knew we were after him. And uh, when he got fast Broadway, and he turned and he went up on the pavement. Yeah. Fortunately, 
there were no visitors there at the time and he, he, he didn't knock anybody over. And then by this time, Sergeant Brown knew what was happening and he'd got a car too. And the two of us were, were following him and he was weaving about all over the going up. And at St. Ninians I thought, now, what'll he do now? And he swung down Bray Hill. And here we followed him all the way along Quarterbridge Road, yeah. right along to the Quarterbridge. Now I thought, oh no, he's not going to go back into town again. And they swung round about into town, going back into town. So at the bottom of Daisy Hill, they hit the curb and they turned the car over. Well, we were able to catch up with them. And uh, one chap was hurt and we had to go, he had to go to hospital. And they got, we got the other fellow out. And... Um, he had the most wonderful set of housebreaking implements I've ever seen. <laughs> and they were on their way up to Onken to break yeah. and enter some place, we found out. <laughs> but uh, they never achieved that. And, yeah. uh, but uh, that was the only time I, I can ever recollect I, I had to uh, get the assistance. And I, I picked a right good car because he, he, used to, he was saying to me on the way, well, I pass him. No, I said, don't do that. Yeah, yes. he'll, he'll crash into you. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, they were, the, the public were very good. They were always very helpful. Yeah. And after that dramatic tale of policing in the 1930s from Arthur Underhill, let's have some holiday stories. The first is the story of transformation, from holiday maker to hotelier. It's told to David Collister by Hilary Gard, and it begins whilst Mr Gard was still a native of Stourbridge in the West Midlands. Well, I came over to the Isle of Man on holiday. I was actually going to Dublin. I brought a car with me, an old Berkeley saloon, an Austin 16.6. Drove up to the landing stage, went to the Dublin kiosk and said, a return two days to Dublin, please. And the man looked at me in horror. And because I hadn't camped out on the quay day and night for two or three nights, they wouldn't even entertain it. Really? Well, that's what it appeared to me. Anyway, they wouldn't take me. So a little higher up was the Isle of Man kiosk. So I went up there, very humble. I said, can you possibly get me over to the Isle of Man? I've got to get over for domestic reasons. Anyway, they took me on boat, craned me on, and we disappeared out of the bar, and the Dublin boat was still in the quay. I bet they wouldn't do that now, turn away potential customer like that. <laughs> no. And that's how I came to the Isle of Man. Yes. I used to come to the Isle of Man ever since I was a small child, because Dad used to work in Liverpool, and he had a contractor, he was in the civil service, and he got it very cheaply, and they used to hire a cottage uh, for the whole our summer holidays for Mother and us three children. The fourth one wasn't born then. And we used to go to Laxey, Ballasalla, marvellous holidays we had. And then uh, I didn't come again. The last time I came was before the war in 1938 where I stopped at Cunningham's camp. And it was a marvellous camp. There was about, oh, 1,000 to 1,500 all men there. And I was there the last week before they broke up and we used to go along several hundred strong, about eight abreast along the promenade with different uh, homemade bands and things, singing and shouting. And there was no hooliganism, nothing like that in, in those days. And we paid uh, two, two guineas a week, and that included all your food and sports. They had a sports field there. They supply you with the football boots, jerseys, the lot, and a, a bit of a swimming pool as well. It was a wonderful holiday. I mean, when you're young, you can eat, you know. And the, and the breakfast was a full breakfast. The one Cunningham had the farms, etc. And they bring you breakfast, bacon, eggs, and uh, so, so on. And if you wanted an, another, you'd just ask for an, another breakfast. And if you'd eat three breakfasts, they'd bring you three, one after the other. Yes. No extra charge. And in those days, uh, of course, I didn't drink, you know. And coming up uh, little Switzerland, there was a little shop there. And I was looking in the shop, and uh, it said, uh, they picked me up uh, a shilling. 
Well, I thought that must be a good drink, that's whatever it was. And, of course, I didn't realise it, that it was for someone who was, uh, couldn't stand on their feet with too much drink, and it had straightened them out. Yeah. Well, I drank this as a gulp, and, my God, it nearly killed me. <laughs> <laughs> then came to the Isle of Man permanently, then, after the war, did you? Well, I came on a beautiful summer's day in August. I was tootling along the promenade, and I stopped at the Grasmere. The sun was scintillating on the sea, and all the boarding houses were all seemed to me to be done in white. I think they all had to be done in the same colour in the old days. And uh, I knocked at the door of the Grasmere, and uh, a young woman came to the door, and I said, have you got a single room for three nights? Of course we haven't, she said. I mean, no hesitation. So I said, well, are you the proprietors? Well, she said, no. Well, I said, can I see whoever is in? Well, she said, you can, but it won't do you any good. Anyway, the proprietors came, who happened to be Mrs Matthews, and I said to her in a very different tone, of course, can you possibly help me? I've come over here for two days. I don't drink. I'm not interested in girls. I'm just coming just to have a look around the island. Won't give you any trouble or anything like that, you see. Well, she said, mm, well, you'll have to sleep in a different room each night. Oh, I said, I don't mind that. And I did. I was there for three... Well, I was there for nearly three weeks. I don't think I slept in the same bed more than two <laughs> nights because I met the doors of the house then and, uh, of course, I stopped longer. And yeah. I went back and sold out my business and I came over to the Isle of Man and uh, started up in the hotel business. Mr Gard's time in the tourist industry saw him running first the Grasmere Hotel and then the Hydro. But his reaction when he made his very first visit to the island never lost its impact. I said to myself, what sort of people are these that are allowed to live here in this paradise? Fantastic. After living and working in Birmingham amongst the uh, machine shops and the, the noise and the dirt and the squalor, to come to a place like that is absolutely incredible. I mean, I would have been quite prepared to be a street sweeper and stop in the Isle of Man rather than go back to Birmingham and Stourbridge where, where I was working. And I'm sure those words from Hilary Gard ring true for so many of us who are not Manx-born but have made the island our home. And for some very different memories of holiday-making on the island, let's return to David Collister's conversation with Victor Neal, living in Myrtle Street in central Douglas and reflecting on holiday times on the island in the 1920s. Well, in the summertime, uh, most of the houses took visitors in. It was the same people that seemed to come year after year in the same weeks when the, the various wakes were on and the majority come from Lancashire or from Scotland, and uh, they become more like friends than visitors. Most of the, the visitors would buy their own food and bring it in. They would uh, have a cupboard each. Your mother would, uh, father would be cooking this for them. Yes. Uh, we took people in. Sunday was always uh, the day when they all had a sit-down meal, and uh, it was a communal effort then. Half a crown a meal and maybe a tuppence for the condiments. We as kids, our job would be peeling the potatoes and a shell and the peas ready for the Sunday's dinner. Another job we had was cleaning the, the candle sticks, making sure there was no loose wax on them and they would be put out on the table for the visitors going to bed. No hot and cold water in those days either. There was just jugs of water in all the bedrooms, so it was a Spartan existence for them because it was <laughs> yeah. cold water. 
Uh, there was one toilet in the house, and that was in the backyard. Big box with a wooden lid on. Was it a dry toilet then? Uh, no, no. It was a flush toilet. A flush toilet. Yeah. But it was um, in a little uh, room in the, the yard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there'd be a, a space at the top of the door and holes barred in the bottom, so to allow ventilation. No bathrooms in those days. The house, it had two floors. You went up the first flight of stairs and there was an outlet straight ahead. There were two small bedrooms. You had to go through one to get to the other. Then on the next floor, there was three bedrooms, one gone uh, at the back of the house and one which had obviously, when the house had been built, had been one room and probably was the drawing room uh, then. And then there was three attics. In the attics, the only lighting was uh, from skylights. And uh, when the visitors would come, at the beginning when there was only a few, we would be up in the attic sleeping. And in the summer, it was mighty hot up there under the eaves. So who would go up there? Would your mother and father go as well? We'd all go up. And, and who else was in the family beside you then? It was my brother and I. Yes. We did have a, a sister, but she died when she was two and a half. Uh, so in the attic you all went then? All up there. But when there was more and more people arrived, on one occasion there was two girls had booked and five of them turned up. And of course, there was no re- really room for them. But they decided they could sleep. There was a big bed there. They could sleep across the bed instead of lengthways. (laughs) And uh, by this time, we were on a mattress down in the the, the kitchen, so the living room. And uh, that was the the way that most people did. They had to make their money in a few short weeks. And when you think of the few shillings they charged the people in those days... It was virtually just enough to pay the bills and Mm. maybe buy you some new clothes at the end of the summer. Yes. So there was no big profits made in that. No. But there were other benefits from holiday time on the island which can never be measured in pounds, shillings and pence. The things you remember about the summer was uh, how happy everybody was. They didn't have much money when these people would come on their holidays, but they would always be well-dressed. The girls would be dressed in in, uh, nice cotton dresses, or uh, I think it was called Macclesfield silk. And uh, the boys, uh, one of the favourite things in the 20s was the Oxford bags. This is the trousers with the very, very wide bottoms. Yes. But everybody seemed to be well-dressed. And there was no question of relying on the pubs for their entertainment. Mm. They seemed to be able to make their entertainment. And the number of people that would be going around the streets singing, mm. be banjos and ukuleles and real uh, big groups of young people really enjoying themselves. Yeah. And going down the promenade, they'd be linked up right across the promenade uh, pavements and they're going long happy, but... The girls always seemed to bring among their kit a dance dress. Yes. And the dance halls was great. There was uh, a whole string of them from Derby Castle, the Palace, Villa Marina, Pallidy Dance in Strand Street. Yeah. 
and uh, you'd see them dancing. There would be 4,000 people at the Palace Ballroom, and uh, of course the fellow that was in charge there, the uh, master of ceremonies, patrolling up and down the centre of the, the dance hall, making sure that people kept on going round anti-clockwise, and it was just like looking at a river moving to see them all going. And uh, they would be singing to the music as well, singing softly to the music. They were absolutely great days. And with those poignant words from Victor Neal, that's where we must close the archive room door for this series. This is Judith saying thank you for listening and wishing you a very good afternoon. (laughs) 